Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. We let our children go back to school. It's time. The debate over reopening schools is heating up here in California. And Governor Newsom has signed a bill that offers more than $6 billion to help get schools back to in-person instruction. So many of our kids and caregivers uh, are celebrating this day because we all are united around coming back safely into the schools and helping with the social-emotional supports that our kids so desperately need. As the pro tem said, this but is Californians aren't united. This issue is polarizing parents, teachers, and communities. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. I have a sister who's at risk, so going to school is really scary for me. And her going to school is really scary too because I don't want her to get anything. School's not screens! School's not screens! They're having emotional issues. My kindergartner now is refusing to do the work and just flipping the lid of her tablet down. And my fourth grader is has been diagnosed during this time with clinical depression and has had suicide ideation as well. You know, we've had a, a mom that died due to COVID complications in my daughter's class, right? You know, I, I think that changes your perspective, right? I'd rather my child not go back to school right now. I feel like uh, we're so close to being vaccinated, all the parents, all the teachers. We should just wait until the fall when it's much safer. We don't trust our fellow classmates at all. We see on Instagram every day, nobody follows precautions who are our peers. Um, and none of them are wearing masks ever, and they're all posing next to each other. So we don't trust our fellow classmates. If we live in fear, our kids will never go back to anything. They miss their friends. They miss the social skills. If you can go out to dinner under a heat lamp and be safe, tell me why you can't send kids out to a yard six feet apart or more. If it's cold, have heat lamps. I've never met my teacher in person, so I really want to meet my teacher 
And there's some new kids in my class who I haven't met, so I want to meet them too. I'm a special education teacher. I'm also a parent. And and you see the comments and the vitriol and just the what's being thrown at us about how we teachers are just, you know, sitting on our laurels, collecting our huge paychecks. I don't know what world these folks are living in. I definitely didn't get into teaching for the big, the big bucks. I think ultimately the result will be many people will move away or enroll in, in private schools or charter schools, and that will further hurt a district that is hurting already. I've known too many people to have coronavirus to feel comfortable going back. The people pushing to return to in-person are typically more privileged. If you got COVID, would you be going to a hospital where you have full health insurance? Do you have a guest room where you can quarantine? Would you be putting your grandmother or your mother or your, you know, who else would you be putting at risk? Uh, my father's a longshoreman and their motto is an injury to one is an injury to all. And so I feel like that is the motto we need to have with COVID. Like if we are risking one grandmother dying, one teacher dying, one custodian dying, one student dying, then it's not worth it. That last voice you heard is Whitney Dwyer. She's a teacher in Oakland, and she's worried about teenagers at her high school spreading the virus. While she's cautious about reopening, she's also well aware that distance learning is less than ideal for her students. It's also taking a big toll on teachers like her, especially when they have their own kids at home. KQED's education reporter Vanessa Rancaño asked Whitney to keep an audio diary for a day, documenting her every move. So I just woke up. I set my alarm for 6. I usually wake up at 6.30, but... Whitney Dwyer teaches 10th grade at MetWest High School in Oakland. She's got to be ready for class in two and a half hours, but right now she's got other things on her mind. Trying to debate if I should go to the grocery store right now. We can't go grocery shopping with the kids, so it's less stressful if I go while they're sleeping and then my husband doesn't have to worry about watching them while I go. And she's already hearing from her students. I also got a text from my student saying that his power is going on and off last night when I was asleep, so he may not make it to class today and he may not be the only one. And I'm also eating pizza because that was the only breakfast we had that I could take and go. She decides to make that dash to the store. Breakfast is a slice of leftover pizza on the way. Driving home, she runs through a list of the things she needs to get done before her class starts at 9 a.m. Wake up the kids, get them dressed, cereal, make sure the two-year-old uses the potty. Whitney has three kids, Brendan, nine, Grayson, seven, and Maxwell, two. I really hope that I can keep my patience. I've really been impressed with the amount of patience I've been able to have. <laughs> Brendan and Grayson need to be on their computers to start school now. Her husband, Anthony, gives Maxwell blocks and puzzles while she settles into the guest room that's become her office. It's 8.30. So here's my, my setup. Distance learning really requires two screens. Um, I'm going to start class now. All right, so our agenda for today, we are going to review and recap with a lightning round. 17 of her 21 humanities students show up. All of them have their cameras off. 
Also want to remind you that your participation credit goes up if your camera is on. I'm feeling a little lonely, although. Sometimes I get tired of sounding desperate. <laughs> like, please, I just feel so alone. Can someone just turn their camera on? It doesn't even have to be on your face. It could be at a window. Whitney's had to adjust to the silence, too. Any questions about that? I feel like I was just talking a lot. Answers almost always come over Zoom chat, and sometimes only Whitney can see them. It's like listening to half a conversation. Thank you, Leilani. Oh, I don't know about all that. What might have been classroom chatter is now a series of chat exchanges in text shorthand. LOL, LMAO, OMG, TY, YW, question mark. Sometimes Whitney can tell her students aren't actually at their computers. Yerma, I need a, a little bit more from you. As she teaches about the Aztecs and the Mayans using a new digital tool, she's got a troubleshoot on the side. And so I'm like trying to teach and then I'm like, <laughs> it's like private chat, chat, text. It's, it's a lot to navigate. There's one moment when the topic of slave labor among the Mayans comes up where there's something almost like a normal class discussion. Imagine being dependent on slave labor. One could argue our society is dependent on slave labor. I mean, there are like very low wages. Like that can't um, be compared to slave labor. The limitations are still painfully clear. It's hard to hear. They can't see each other. Teaching over Zoom basically takes away almost everything that I enjoy about teaching. Now I'm, it's just, you know, nightmares of black boxes. Bye, y'all. Bye. There are still moments of connection. After class, 16-year-old Memo Martinez stays on to get advice. He even turns his camera on. At this school, all students are expected to take on internships. Memo's having a hard time picking one. Let's just say I have one interest and I'm like, oh, why do I do this? After that, another interest happens. What if I go into cooking? Then I'm like, yo, bro, I don't want to. And then later I thought, yo, what if I work in automotives? Just a bunch of what ifs. I don't know. I just and can't that's say great. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Like, never change. It sucks to just have one interest. This is what Whitney misses most about teaching. I love how their minds work. Whitney has two minutes to run to the bathroom before her teacher planning meeting starts at 1030. And then I check their work and it turns out that they weren't reading. It's a chance or to get crucial professional and emotional part. support. I only had two brave souls today that were down to read out loud. It's it harder like, than in school. It's yeah. surprising. It's the closest thing Whitney has to the staff room these days. It was like pulling teeth. We are quiet for like a good maybe 30 seconds. No. It has spread. That's not nice. It's almost noon now, and time to take over parenting so her husband can go back to work. That means lunch and homework and bathroom time for Maxwell. It's time to go to the party. Red light. Red light. Right now I have 26 text messages, messages on 11 different Slack channels, talking about some of my students that are absent for class. Most days, most of Whitney's students show up. Some are doing well. Their grades and reading levels have gone up. Then there are the ones who were taking care of siblings, the ones who don't have stable housing. She's lost track of one student altogether. And then there's her own son's academic progress. You got this. You do this every day. You've been doing I don't do this every day. Good job. My all week. 
I read it with my teacher usually. No, that's just... This is the hardest moment in Whitney's day, the hardest part of distance learning, knowing some students need more than she can give, that her own kids may too. Stop pretending to stab yourself in the neck with a pencil. (laughs) Not funny. Not funny at all. Are you guys going to be okay for now? My meeting is happening now. Okay. After helping Brendan and Grayson with their homework, Whitney puts Maxwell down for a nap, then pleads with her older boys to keep quiet so she can meet with her school leaders over Zoom. She's presenting a proposal for teachers to get more training on how to support students and parents who are dealing with trauma. I've had so many instances just this year. There's like, death is always around us. As hard as it's been to adapt to this new way of teaching, it's the world students face outside the classroom that she hasn't been able to troubleshoot her way out of. They have a stronger relationship with me than with anyone else, so it's difficult for anyone else to provide that support. She struggles to name the solution. More financial resources to point families to? better mental health services? She's compelled to take these questions on with her colleagues, even though it's just one more thing. But Hi. Yes, I know. Help me open At the end of the day, after dinner, after putting the kids to bed, Whitney sits down to send work emails. I had intentions to do work that night, and I fell asleep at my computer. One more thing pushed to Sunday night, when she's regularly up until 3 a.m. catching up on the week's work. For the California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño in Oakland. Since she first recorded that audio diary, Whitney Dwyer has been able to get her first vaccine. She says it would be a scramble for schools like hers to reopen this spring. But by the fall, with proper planning, she thinks they could open safely, especially if most adults in the school community are vaccinated by then. While there's still debate over the safety of reopening classrooms, California public health officials have given the green light for school sports to start up again, both outdoors and indoors if they meet certain requirements. The pandemic had disrupted a lot of sports programs, and some of them kept kids out of trouble. For some kids in Oakland, that sport was football. At the same time, 2020 marked one of the deadliest years on the streets of Oakland in the last decade. As KQED's Marco Seiler-Gonzalez tells us, police officials and community activists say there's a connection. The Oakland Unified School District just started allowing their sports teams to work out for the first time in nearly a year. Y'all got cleats, throw them on. Let's go. Joe Bates is the head football coach at Skyline High School. He's standing with 30 or so players and coaches outside the field at Castlemont High School. It's one of the few athletic fields the school district has opened and where his team will have to practice. As the gate opens, the students run onto the field and splinter out into their positions for drills. It's a lot of young, lanky kids lining up six feet apart, awaiting the coach's cue. That first five yards gotta be the hardest burst, set. Unlike a normal practice, there's no balls, no pads, and no contact. Defensive coach Kerry Griffin says the important thing is just getting the kids back on the field. So that way they're they're not always cooped up in the house or running the streets. It's well known the COVID-19 pandemic has hit Black and Latino neighborhoods particularly hard. But a different epidemic has taken a violent grip over those same communities as school programs have disappeared. There's way more students than it used to be. 
Devin Trahan is a defensive tackle in his senior year at Skyline. He lives just down the street from Castlemont, where he says shootings have become a near daily occurrence. Honestly, I'm so used to it, I would hear it and I'd be like, damn, that's another life taken. Before the pandemic, Oakland's violent crime was on the decline, but the murder rate increased by 36% in 2020. According to OUSD, around 12 students and recent graduates were a part of that death toll. One of those students was an up-and-coming star running back for Skyline, Aaron Pryor. He was shot and killed back in September, just after turning 16. If Corona wouldn't have never hit, I think my son would have still, still been here. For sure, it's no ifs, ands, buts about it. He would have still been here. Taiwan Pryor is Aaron's dad. On a recent Friday, he was sitting with friends and family outside of his house in East Oakland. He lives here with his mom and two kids. They were in the middle of a very lively game of cards. Taiwan's wearing a black long sleeve shirt with a blown up picture of him with his son. That was my number one guy. I was, I was his number one fan. Aaron's football career started at a young age when Taiwan put him in a Pop Warner Youth League. He had some awesome talent, bro. He was MVP for like two years in a row. Feel me? Aaron was running back all four years. Taiwan moved to Las Vegas when Aaron was 13, and his son's life outside of the game became more complicated. Aaron lived with his mom, but she worked long hours. Taiwan says that's when Aaron started getting into trouble. And that's why like, I think he became like the way he was, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I ain't got no parent really, no full-time parent in the house with me, so I'm grown. Taiwan says Aaron was arrested for robbery when he was 14 years old and spent nine months in juvie. It's there that Taiwan says Aaron had a big wake-up call. And he was like, damn, Dad. Like, I'm supposed to be playing football right now. So that really hurt him that he couldn't play. Taiwan moved back to Oakland to keep a closer eye on his son. After Aaron got out of juvie, Taiwan took him up to see Coach Bates, who saw Aaron's potential. Coach Bates was like, man, that boy, we're like, damn, bro. He big, stocky. Where did he come from, bro? Like, he hella fast. Aaron started to meet with teammates for unofficial workouts in the park last spring. But just as he was getting into rhythm with his team, the pandemic got worse and they stopped working out together. And Aaron fell back into old habits on the streets. If you don't get away, or if you don't really be focused, then just Oakland's a big old trap, man, for certain kids. And my son was one of them. Aaron was killed on September 27th. He was shot just outside of his mom's apartment. Taiwan still goes up to his grave. I go like every two days, just sit up there. Dang, I was my firstborn child. I can't ever get that back. John Schwartzberg is a professor at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. He says while the virus is a very real threat, it has to be weighed against other public health concerns like gun violence. There's a lot of benefit for these kids, psychological and maybe even benefit in keeping them off the streets and in more dangerous circumstances. Schwartzberg says it's a matter of harm reduction. The idea is that it's unrealistic to expect kids to stay indoors all day. So provide an outdoor space where they can stay safe from the virus and out of harm's way. The harm reduction would be to say, well, yes, there is a risk of doing that, but the, uh, the good that comes from it is, is better and they're gonna, it's going to help obviate them from doing other things. Unlike opening schools for in-person learning, which can be costly, the cost of opening outdoor conditioning programs is relatively inexpensive. Cost for masks and um, probably the cost of maybe moving the equipment a spokesman for OUSD acknowledged that the absence of sports is detrimental for students. 
but he said the district was more focused on reopening classrooms, which haven't opened yet. Meanwhile, the state has allowed for outdoor conditioning since July. Coach Bates believes if the district had opened sports up back then, Aaron might have had a chance to survive. If we were doing what we're doing now, back then, um, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, I'm close to 100% sure that he wouldn't, he would still be here today with us. Bates says Aaron understood what was at stake. Aaron always kind of reached out and was like, man, coach, I want to, I want to really commit to this um, before I end up dead or in jail. So, you know, he wanted, he wanted more, he wanted better for himself. Bates says he tried to keep tabs on Aaron, but in the end, the only way he was able to keep Aaron off the streets was through football. And when it happened, we felt, we, were, we felt broken because, you know, we felt the responsibility to a certain extent, you know what I mean? And we felt like we failed. Aaron's story is tragic, but unfortunately, it's not unique. Coach Bates says he's had three kids drop out since the pandemic hit, and 22 others who are falling behind in their classes. For the time being, the coaching staff at Skyline High School is just happy to have their boys back on the field. At the end of practice, Coach Bates leads the team in a rallying cry. The chant is also a big part of their official game time hype song. For the California Report, I'm Marco Siler Gonzalez in Oakland. That song you're hearing is called Titans by Oakland rapper C.T. Beats. He wrote it in honor of the Skyline High School mascot. Of course, the vaccine is going to change things dramatically in terms of life getting back to normal for all of us here in California. But surveys show that Black Californians are a lot more reluctant to get the coronavirus vaccine than white Californians. But most of those surveys don't ask respondents why. The California Report's health correspondent April Domboski debunks a theory that politicians and medical experts have widely embraced. For months, health officials, politicians, and journalists have been invoking the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study to explain why Black people are skeptical of the vaccine. The Tuskegee experiment is a terrible stain on the soul of this nation. Because of things like the Tuskegee experience. The Tuskegee experiment. The Tuskegee experiment. The Tuskegee studies. Remember Tuskegee? Is this the federal government trying to fool you again? This bothers Maxine Toller. She's 72 and lives near Los Angeles. She talks to her friends and neighbors about the vaccine all the time. She's Black, they're Black. Hardly anyone brings up Tuskegee. And she says the handful that do are fuzzy on the details. If you ask them, well, what was it about and why do you feel like it would impact your receiving the vaccine now, they can't even tell you. Most people she talks to cite very current reasons for not wanting the vaccine. Religious beliefs or safety concerns, or they think the former president rushed it through for political gain. Toller calls the Tuskegee references a distraction, irrelevant even. It's almost the opposite of Tuskegee because they were being denied treatment, right? <laughs> and this is like, you know, we're, we're pushing people forward, like go and get this vaccine. A little history review for all of us from the PBS documentary, The Deadly Deception. The experiment was called the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. It began in 1932 with about 400 black men in Alabama who had syphilis, a bacterial STD. It was authorized by the U.S. Public Health Service, paid for with taxpayers' dollars, and conducted by government doctors. Some people believe that researchers injected the men with syphilis, but that's not true. 
They already had it, though researchers never told the men they had syphilis. The doctors said they had come to cure bad blood. And they never intended to cure them, even when a cure became widely available in the 1940s. The war period saw the rise of a wonder drug, penicillin. The study was about tracking the effects of untreated syphilis on the body, and doctors were determined to make it to their endpoint, autopsy. They withheld treatment and continued the study for another 25 years. The researchers pushed on, undeterred. By the time the study was exposed and shut down in 1972, 128 men had died from syphilis or related complications. 40 wives and 19 children were infected. With a horrific history like this, you might assume that Black people would never want to participate in clinical research ever again. Over the next three decades, various books, articles, and films repeated this assumption as gospel. That was a false assumption. Dr. Reuben Warren is in charge of bioethics at Tuskegee University and is a former assistant director of minority health at the CDC. He's originally from L.A. The hesitancy is there, but the refusal is not. And that's an important difference. Starting in the mid-90s, some researchers went on the hunt for evidence that Black people would refuse to be part of research. Over the next dozen years, they completed 17 studies, including surveys of thousands of people. The conclusions were definitive. While Black people were more wary of participating in research compared to white people, they were equally willing to actually participate. Hesitant, yes, but not refusal. Tuskegee was not the deal-breaker everyone thought it was. Warren says this did not go over well at the CDC and in other research circles. Much of it indicted and contradicted what the government said. Now researchers had to confront the real problem. Many of them never invited Black people to participate in their studies in the first place. When they did, they didn't try very hard. Tuskegee was a scapegoat. That was the excuse that they used to not include Black and, and other communities of color in the research enterprise. If I don't want to go through the extra energy resources to include the population, I can simply say they were not interested, they refused. Warren says the same presumptions that were made about clinical research are resurfacing around the coronavirus vaccine. A lot of hesitancy is being confused for refusal. And so a lot of the work that needs to be done to get the vaccine to Black communities is not being done. USC sociologist Karen Lincoln believes Tuskegee is once again being used as a scapegoat. It's an excuse. And I do think that if you continue to use it as a way of explaining why many African-Americans are hesitant, it, it, it almost absolves you of having to learn more, do more, involve other people, admit that racism is actually a thing today. The memory of Tuskegee is still very present for some people, but Lincoln says it's the contemporary failures of the healthcare system that are causing more distrust than events of the past. It's what happened to me yesterday. Not what happened 50 years ago. African-American seniors complain to her all the time about doctors dismissing their concerns or nurses answering the call button for their white roommate more than them. And the word travels fast when people have negative experiences. They, they share it. Like the Facebook Live video of Susan Moore that went viral. Moore, a Black doctor with COVID, filmed herself from her hospital bed, an oxygen tube in her nose. She tells the camera how she had to beg her physician to give her remdesivir, the drug that speeds up recovery from COVID. 
He said, ah, you don't need it. You're not even short of breath. I said, yes, I am. He further stated, you should just go home right now. I put forward and I maintain, if I was white, I wouldn't have to go through that. Dr. Moore died two weeks later. It's stories like these that stoke mistrust. Dr. Reuben Warren says, if you want to shift that, if you want Black people to trust doctors and trust the vaccine, don't blame them for distrusting it. The obligation is on the health institutions to first show that they are trustworthy. Prove yourself trustworthy and trust will follow. Warren says Black people will participate when institutions and officials take responsibility and stop making excuses. For The California Report, I'm April Domboski. And that's The California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Amanda Font is our director. Our engineers this week were Brendan Willard and Seal Muller. Our team at KQED also includes Queena Kim, Julia McAvoy, and Sarah Hosseini. Hector Arzate is our intern. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks so much for listening. This is The California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.